Hello, hello, hello. It feels like a while since I've sat behind this mic, and I guess it probably is. Um, I I record a lot in advance, and I did so in anticipation of end of summer, and then just a lot of things changed, which some of you might know. Um, I took a position as an aide in a local school, so I'm working with children, teens, almost teens, uh, eighth graders, 11th grader with um, learning disabilities and trauma, and it has been just incredible. So added another thing to my plate, I had to make a little space, Um, definitely, you know, not leaving this podcast, which I enjoy so much. I am considering if I'm going to keep up this pace every other week, bi-monthly, um, or go to a monthly, um, you tell me. Um, it's so weird and challenging putting out so much content, podcasts, newsletters, blogs, and some some people uh, write me that they've read my newsletter and it makes me feel so good. Um, or, uh, you know, do a rating, do a review, just so I know you're listening. And of course, If there's a topic we haven't covered that you're interested in, um, please let me know, you know, or if there's someone you think I should interview, what are you resonating with? I would love to hear about it. Um, So I do have a a few exciting guests coming up. Uh, One that I had to book way out in advance, I want to say like six months ago. Very, very exciting. Um, very important topic. And another one also that I've been you know, struggling to get on the show around a topic that's, I think, very interesting. So we're going to keep discussing hot topics, interesting topics, and modalities. What else? What else? Um, still taking coaching clients, still leading trauma-informed trainings. I'll be announcing a live in-person opportunity happening at Omega. Um, and, and other workshops and opportunities as they come up. And I was, uh, recently on a podcast being interviewed about my book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, out for Shambhala Publications. And I would love you to hear that interview and all these interviews, um, depending on, you know, the interviewer's questions, it really brings out different parts of the process, of the book, of the trainings, Um, of my knowledge that I can share. Um, And this was a great interview. I'm going to link it in the show notes. And it got me to thinking, well, we never made a audio version of the book. And first of all, that's an accessibility issue for me. So I am pushing for one. Believe me, it's not my choice. I reached out to my publisher and I said, please let me do an audio version. And so, you know, with publishing, with rights and all this and that, I can't read the whole book to you. But we've come to an agreement, and I'm going to be reading, maybe in the next couple episodes, um, a good chunk of my book, The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga. Um, So if you're like me, and you're an audible junkie, um, and you like to hear your books um, through your earbuds so you can walk and kind of process, get your exercise, be outside in nature, which you know is very important to me. I just love to, sometimes I love to read. I still love to read out of a book, but sometimes I love to listen to my books while I'm doing my dishes and other things around the house. So, um, yeah. So here we go. 
here we go. The Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga, How to Create Safer Spaces for All by Lara Land, published by Shambhala Publications and read by me, Lara Land. Introduction. In March of 2008, I returned to the United States with nowhere to live and not sure of what I would be able to do professionally. I had spent the better part of my Saturn return year, an astrology-indicated time of transitional growth, studying and volunteering in India and Rwanda. I had given up my longtime Brooklyn apartment and was largely disconnected from my former New York yoga community. The stock market had crashed, which meant most of my private yoga clients, who made up the bulk of my teaching income, were not renewing their contracts. Being away from my chosen career path for so long had me feeling like a runner held back before a big race, filled with ideas and energy, and ready to share my recent experiences. I created Bring Back the Light, a workshop on karma, yoga, and service that I planned to pitch to religious organizations, schools, and businesses. I thought I was going to transform the way the world, or at least the New York tri-state area, thought about yoga especially the way it implemented charity. No one could stop me, not even my mother, who reminded me that no one was spending money on yoga during a deep economic recession. I rented a studio apartment on 127th Street in Harlem. I had heard great things about Harlem and was eager to get to know the community as I settled into my new home. Instead, I promptly got an offer to teach daily yoga at 6.30 a.m. in Greenpoint, Brooklyn, an hour away. With no savings and no job alternatives, I said yes to the long, disjointed commute. After 10 months, as I trudged yet again across the Pulaski Bridge at 6 a.m., my red rain boots filled knee-deep with snow, I knew that it was time for a change. It was time for me to open my own yoga studio in the Harlem neighborhood I had grown to love. In 2011, I opened Land Yoga on the ground floor of a condominium in the heart of the busy Frederick Douglass Boulevard, 8th Avenue corridor. A cluster of businesses had opened, and I felt that I was part of a community-building moment. I made it a priority to reach as many people as possible, especially complete beginners. My team of teachers, wellness practitioners, college interns, and I offered classes, workshops, massage, acupuncture, Reiki, pre- and postnatal offerings, children's parties, art shows, demonstrations, and cooking classes. We even brought yoga to local parks, schools, street fairs, and festivals. I dreamed about doing in Harlem what I had done in Rwanda, bringing yoga to folks who have been through intense trauma to support their health and healing. I wanted to do it smartly and sustainably, avoiding the mistakes I had witnessed from others in the nonprofit world. It was an idea that I kept brewing as I made land yoga strong enough to take on an additional enterprise. Drawn from my time in India, my scope of trauma included people who had experienced abuse, had limited resources, and were marginalized within our communities. I hadn't yet come to understand the traumatic stress of daily life as a black American in our country due to living with structural racism, microaggressions, othering. My experience of living and forming my yoga studio in Harlem reopened my eyes to and led me to further research these topics of traumas. I'm deeply in depth indebted to my BIPOC friends and mentors in the community who trusted me enough to share their experience and showed patience and compassion for me in these early days of my learning how to best address the community needs. Three and a half acres yoga. Then in 2014, 
Eric Gardner and Michael Brown were murdered by police in New York City and Ferguson, Missouri, respectively. The senselessness of their deaths circled and circled inside of me. I felt that I had to do something, however small, with the skills I had to make a positive difference. I mapped my thoughts and entrepreneurial vision and soon had the initial structure for Three and a Half Acres Yoga, a nonprofit designed to broaden access to yoga and breathing and mindfulness techniques, focusing on communities that have experienced trauma. The name Three and a Half Acres Yoga is derived from a quote from my Ashtanga teacher, Sharat Joyce, who made the connection for me between clean air and mental health. He taught that a person needs three and a half acres of tree-filled land to breathe properly, and that without access to this generous amount of clean, fresh air, clear thinking is not possible. With my nonprofit, I aspire to create the benefits of this acreage through relaxation, lung expansion, and increased breath capacity through yoga. Our classes and trainings support practitioners and teachers alike in recognizing their power to generate positive change. We offer stress reduction for those dealing with the trauma associated with these high-profile deaths and ongoing social injustices. The techniques we use assist practitioners in finding their vision and activating their voices. In addition, this work trains others in how to de-escalate contentious situations. We form partnerships with organizations such as Harlem United, the Food Bank of New York, and Children's Aid Society. I created a separate arm of the organization to bring yoga to the New York Police Department. I traveled all over Harlem and Upper Manhattan to visit precincts at roll calls, which are held at the start of officer shifts and when they get their daily briefing. The first time I went, I was shaky as I explained the benefits of yoga and urged them to join our free classes for cops. Over time, my voice grew confident, my pitches got better, and officers started coming to class. Trauma-sensitive yoga for police is a sensitive, controversial offering. Many people feel no police reform is possible and that our free offerings are misdirected. Our feeling counters that. Yoga is revolutionary. It teaches the habit of pausing before action, giving that one extra second to slow things down. We become less directed by our reptilian brain and more aware of conscious choice. This habit has the potential to disrupt reactionary responses, and we hope to get our yoga classes into the police academy to plant the seeds of awareness from day one of training. Our targeted work has had a positive response. Officers have become regulars at our yoga classes, with a few enthusiasts wrangling coworkers to join them. We have also been able to do some powerful work with the NYPD Law Enforcement Explorers Program, which brings local youth and officers together to practice yoga side by side and connect with one another. I was honored for leading these efforts by former Mayor Bill de Blasio on National Night Out, a campaign to promote better partnerships between community and police. Our work with the NYPD Law Enforcement Explorers Program was also featured on NY1, our local cable news network. However, now that the NYPD has its own health and wellness department, we have suspended most of these classes and are focusing on broadening access to yoga for survivors of trauma in the five major categories of housing and food insecurity, domestic violence, LGBTQIA recovery, and social justice issues such as integration after incarceration and immigration. We are also looking at how to actively support folks affected by climate crisis disasters as that need becomes more and more urgent. Our program teachers are trained in yoga trauma sensitivity and in best practices for avoiding trauma triggers in yoga class. 
as well as how to interpret yoga teaching in a way that is empowering for the practitioner. This means the practice is rooted in reinforcing autonomy and nurturing the practitioner's ability to tune in to their inner knowledge about what is best for them. The cost of training is covered by volunteer commitment. When the volunteer commitment is complete, we hire the volunteers we most believe in, and they become teachers, mentors, and trainers. Our work has had an impact on the lives of yoga teachers and their students, including those who have faced a wide variety of trauma as a result of drugs, abuse, age, discrimination, and housing insecurity. We have found that our method of teaching is effective for all, regardless of the origin of trauma, because it is born of adaptability, the trauma event that shook the world. As I set out to write this book in the winter of 2019, I could not have predicted the way our methods would be tested by the new traumatic event each one of us was about to face, the arrival of COVID-19 in early 2020. Living through a pandemic is traumatic. It has changed many of us all at once and within the briefest of periods, from outgoing social beings to homebodies afraid to be near strangers. In New York City, I witnessed previously polite neighbors sneer when folks came too close, scurry to the edges of apartment lobbies with their heads down as if hiding, and rush each other at the grocery store for toilet paper and disinfectant. Survival instincts are embedded in each one of us in our DNA. They can flip our lids, turning us into selfish and single-minded lunatics, especially when scarcity or perceived scarcity enters the mix. Collective intelligence, collaboration, and altruism are also embedded in our genetic code for survival. We know this because it feels good to do good. In fact, the Dalai Lama himself often speaks about a kind of wise selfishness. If you help others with sincere motivation and sincere concern, that will bring you more fortune, more friends, more smiles, and more success. He also reminds us we will have more helpers available when our time comes for needing assistance. The writer and activist Adrienne Marie Brown asks so eloquently in her seminal emergent strategy, do you understand that your quality of life and your survival are tied to how authentic and generous the connections are between you and the people and place you live with and in? The human challenge is that it is hard to know how much we are connected to one another when we are in a stress response because of the way it narrows our vision. As the Buddhist minister and author Lama Rod Owens recently reminded me in an episode of the podcast 10% Happier, we have to practice the kind of meditation that awakens us to our connectivity when things are not difficult. When times become difficult, that knowledge is instilled in us, and we are ready to lean in through our nervous system, though it wants us to lead us elsewhere. When a crisis happens, he said, actually what happens is I just fall into my practice. Even with all my yoga and meditation training, when the pandemic hit, I felt fear and mistrust of others arise within my body. Stepping outside my door was enough to make my heart rate go up. Grocery stores felt like minefields. Nothing and no one felt safe to the point that when I finally did start meeting friends again, outside and at a social distance, I didn't know how to be with them. I remember running into my friend Kristen on the street one day. We stood across from each other, faces half covered by our masks, trying to connect, but our bodies kept doing a strange shuffle and our words came out trite and superficial. It was hard to know where to start our conversation. There was both so much to say and the feeling that it had already been said. We needed a kind of silent emotional communion with the nuances of touch and facial expressions. With those methods unavailable, we just flapped about like fish out of water before scurrying off. I know my experience was not unique. Fear can envelop us in an instant and stay with us long after the trigger has departed. We will all be working through the triggers and aftermath of COVID-19 for some time in our own unique ways. 
Many people were shocked during the pandemic by how we handled or were unable to handle low-level challenges, myself included. This is because of how stressed our capacity our systems were. When already so stretched, the smallest burdens can overwhelm the system. Have you heard the Chinese proverb, if you want to know what water is, don't ask a fish? It seems that we didn't know how stressful the environment we were swimming in was until COVID-19 hit. Since 2020, many Americans and people worldwide have woken up to the buzzing stress they and their fellow citizens are facing as the result of structural and systemic racism, environmental stress, and species loss, economic insecurity, few and poor social safety nets, an individualistic perfectionist culture, and a sea of social media designed to breed competition and isolation. We are living at a time and in a society that encourages a piece of life so traumatic to all our systems. The practices of trauma-informed yoga help revise that narrative and slow it to a more humane speed. When a person is already dealing with institutional or other traumas, a new traumatic incident triggers the body into a trauma response. Another person may respond to the same event without trauma. Another may even experience post-traumatic growth, a positive psychological change that can come for some from their struggles. All responses to trauma are correct ones. They all exhibit the genius of the mind-body system that protects us from harm we cannot bear. Our body responds with its unique internal intelligence drawn from personal history living in each of our cells. We are living in an era of enormous trauma with a likelihood of more traumatic incidents to come. We are going to need some help to get through it. One of the best things we can do is prepare to understand and regulate our nervous systems. If you are feeling stressed, practice yoga. If you are feeling good, practice yoga too. The fruits of the practice, the ability to calm yourself and recognize when you are becoming dysregulated will help you now and later. Promoting Inner Guidance in Group Yoga Though a handful of books explain trauma-informed yoga teaching for the individual, this is the first book that outlines the tough job of teaching the individual in a group setting. My message to teachers is to get to know the individual student why they are there. Guide each student on their personal journey and help them awaken their own inner guidance and launch a self-led voyage. My hope is that this book will help you do that while serving as a resource to the practitioner, providing guidance on everything from what to look for in a teacher to what to focus on in each pose and how to create a devoted home practice. I hope it inspires both teacher and student to rethink the role of yoga, the yoga teacher, and the relationship between teacher and student in yoga spaces everywhere. A note to readers. The nature of this book requires that I discuss, sometimes in detail, traumatic incidences and responses. Witnessing or hearing about trauma can be triggering. As you read, check in with your nervous system, taking breaks to regulate yourself through grounding, shaking out, immersing in nature, journaling, calling a friend, watching a show, or seeking out any other resource that supports your nature. Take your time. Chapter 1. Defining Trauma Trauma is traditionally regarded as a psychological and medical disorder of the mind. The practice of modern medicine and psychology while giving a lip service to a connection between mind and body, greatly underestimates the deep relationship that they have in the healing of trauma. The welding unity of body and mind that throughout time has formed the philosophical and practical underpinnings of most of the world's traditional healing systems is sadly lacking in our modern understanding and treatment of trauma. Dr. Peter A. Levine, Waking the Tiger. Naming things matters. 
It gives those things weight and provides a way for us to communicate and legitimize what we know is happening to us. Yet so often, science is slow to identify the experiences we have long recognized anecdotally. Clinical diagnoses are not fixed things. They change as science advances. Representation increases in the field, and scientists are pushed to expand the framework of their research to include a larger variety of experiences. For this reason, we can expect new definitions of trauma to come into our consciousness as more and more marginalized people take power and their experiences are brought into the light. We often think of trauma as a single instance, such as a violent attack, but there are many kinds of trauma, even some that get passed down through generations. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Medical Disorders, DSM-5, published by the American Psychiatric Association, defines post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, as exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, or sexual violence. It explains that exposure may include direct experience, being a witness, learning about an event that happened to a loved one, or repeated contact with details surrounding a traumatic event, as is often the case with nurses, therapists, and police. PTSD is the most recognized result of trauma, but there are many other trauma and stressor-related disorders. The DSM-5 lists reactive attachment disorder, dishibited social engagement disorder, acute stress disorder, adjustment disorders, and other specified trauma and stressor-related disorders, and unspecified trauma and stressor-related disorders. Nowhere, however, in the DSM-5 is race-based traumatic stress injury, RBTSI, listed, detailed brilliantly by Dr. Gail Parker in her book, Restorative Yoga for Ethnic and Race-Based Stress and Trauma. To give further context to the complexity and social factors behind the DSM-5 definition, sexual violence as a potential PTSD trigger was only recently added. We may want to ask ourselves what other traumas are absent from the clinical definition of PTSD and how that affects the more than 41 million Americans who receive counseling each year. Trust science has become the mantra of the progressive left and a plea for those who have fallen prey to conspiracy theories. And yet we must also acknowledge that the science we love and trust lives within, not beyond, the influences of culture, stereotypes, and racism. The scientific and medical communities are only just starting to recognize the ways systemic oppression creates trauma. They are also just beginning to understand the ways trauma is biologically inherited through epigenetics and perpetrated, as we often without realizing it, preemptively protect ourselves against harms our ancestors faced that are no longer relevant to us today. Just as scientific trauma diagnoses are evolving, so is the scientific validation of yoga practice as a preventative and healing modality. Two decades ago, my Indian teachers taught me that yoga was a science, but it's only in recent years that yoga has been given scientific credibility in the West. These days, you can find yoga instruction in schools, therapy sessions, and doctor's prescriptions, although it's really covered by health insurance companies. Scientific research shows yoga practice reduces blood pressure, aids in the management of type 2 diabetes, reduces the body's stress response, and increases our tolerance to pain. But at its heart, yoga is still experimental. When folks ask me, what are the benefits of yoga? I always suggest they practice and then tell me. Through regular practice, yogis have experienced the ways that yoga addresses and heals all kinds of trauma, regulates our systems, and teaches us to be self-aware, resilient, and cognitive of choice. Recognizing trauma. Trauma-informed yoga teachers are not clinicians. You do not need to determine the specific type of stress a student has or diagnose PTSD or other forms of post-traumatic stress to bring relief. 
nor is it important to cite yoga studies and prescribe yoga poses as though they were pills. What is important is becoming aware of all the ways trauma can show up in your classroom and to be responsive to students' needs by offering yoga the way it was intended to be shared, with respect, adaptability, compassion, and choice. Gail Parker writes in the preface of Restorative Yoga for Ethnic and Race-Based Stress and Trauma that until now, ethnic and race-based traumatic stress has been a neglected area of inquiry in most trauma-informed therapeutic modalities, including trauma-informed yoga. Yet many of us working in the field of stress reduction and trauma recovery, and those of us living the reality, recognize it as a real and unique source of emotional injury. My experience shows me that this is true. If a person feels unable to live freely or experiences threat or repression throughout the day or the threat of future repression, that causes trauma. If a person is exposed to images and stories of folks like them that suggest they should be fearful and limit their expression and impact on the world to stay quote-unquote safe, that is traumatic. Being silenced is traumatizing. If a person works in a job where accidents occur or where folks are often intimidated or arrested, this is traumatizing, as is arrest and imprisonment. If a parent or caregiver is lost, especially early in life due to death or abandonment, or if they came and went unexpectedly, this can cause trauma. Not getting needs met or a perpetual lack of resources produces trauma. Accidents and natural disasters may cause trauma. Climate changing is traumatic. Sickness of self or a loved one may cause trauma, as can surgery and other invasive medical events. Birthing a child can be traumatic. It was pretty traumatic for me. Economical grief, ecological grief, all of these create trauma. You don't have to go to a war zone to see the effects of trauma. It's in our communities, in our homes, and in us. The Adverse Childhood Experiences study a spike hyzer drew a lot of attention by showing that negative childhood experiences are far more common than anyone expected we now know that two out of three children experience at least one adverse event in childhood and those who do are much more likely to experience a second traumatic instance we must consider that trauma is in every room that we enter sometimes just beneath the surface it's alive and present in every shared space yoga class, and community. Healing ourselves first. Hurt people hurt people, the saying goes. Part of my purpose for sharing trauma-informed yoga practices has been to disrupt that cycle. We disrupt not just by offering to aid others, but also by recognizing the pain within us and working to soften it through self-compassion. In taking a look at ourselves and the ways we have hardened and defended ourselves against pain, we naturally grow to understand others and have compassion for their circumstances as well. This, in turn, helps them on their path to health and well-being, which is also the path for our own healing. So much of the work we do to become trauma-informed yoga teachers is about healing ourselves. Dr. Kristen Neff is an author and pioneer in the field of self-compassion. Her research helps us understand how doing our inner work positively affects others. For instance, she writes in her book, Fierce Self-Compassion, self-compassionate people tend to have more compassionate goals in their close relationships, meaning they tend to provide a lot of emotional support to others they are close to. They also are more accepting of the flaws and shortcoming of others and better at perspective taking or considering outside viewpoints. As we recognize and soften towards the pain in ourselves, we broaden our awareness of all the places trauma lives in others, 
the hidden nooks and crannies, the obvious places that we haven't been able to see. This is an important first step. The next step is to recognize that though trauma events affect us all, they affect us in different ways depending on a multitude of factors, including our previous experiences, culture, community, resources, and biology. The power of previous experiences. For many reasons, a person who has experienced trauma once is more likely to be faced with trauma again. Though we can't say that having previous experience with trauma means they will have a worse future trauma, we can say re-traumatization is a real concern. If a person has just recovered or is working on recovering from a trauma and experiences another one, this new experience can compound and negatively affect recovery. Ideas of the world as dangerous can be reinforced. In fact, the world the individual individual is living in may be unsafe. Marcy Chopin, a teacher at my yoga studio, Lan Yoga, and the author of Yin Yoga Masterclass, a memoir, survived ongoing childhood abuse. When later in life she found herself being arrested in her home on false accusations, a second traumatic event, it brought back the intense horror of her previous entrapment. How could her life post-child abuse have led to that arrest? Marcy shared with me how the trauma from the event affects her life. The PTSD manifestations of anger, depression, anxiety, and ADD, attention deficit disorder, are like dirty mirrors that money perception of events in daily life, she said. First, from research we know, trauma can make it hard to form healthy, positive relationships and to trust others. It can sometimes escalate conflicts. The biggest problem with my childhood abuse, Marcy explained, was I was never diagnosed with PTSD. Once I was arrested and my shrink said, you have PTSD, I thought, okay, now I know what I'm working with. In any situation I have, I ask myself if I'm reacting to the actual situation that's happening or if it's the PTSD that is in front of it. People who have gone through multiple traumas experience more emotional dysregulation, disassociation, and trouble learning new knowledge and retaining memories. The adverse long-term health consequences include increased risk of heart disease, cancer, and even reduced life expectancy. In Marcy's case, she has found a way to offset these adverse impacts through yoga practice, walking her dog, therapy, and knowledge of the way PTSD works. Becoming aware of and using coping skills that work for you is called resourcing, and it's very important to the healing process. The Power of Being Believed A key component of healing trauma is a survivor being believed or feeling that they would be believed if they shared their experience of trauma. When a person's trauma is not validated, they may have trouble not only healing but also recognizing their own trauma. Even when a trauma is recognized, some cultures may be more likely to downplay the condition and approach it as if solvable via force of will and fortitude, hiding it from others and missing the crucial assistance of qualified professionals. Even when a trauma survivor receives support from professionals, understanding their trauma through the lens of the culture may influence how they experience it, and certainly how they describe their trauma. For example, the individual might focus on describing physical symptoms and omit or downplay emotional upheaval. Many cultures have stigmas attached to trauma that make it difficult for a person suffering to seek help, even if they do recognize the trauma. They may feel at risk of alienating themselves or being judged, or they may have internalized the stigmas around trauma or the cause of their trauma. Many trauma survivors navigate deep shame because of internalized social messaging. I should have been able to avoid this or get away from it sooner, recover from it faster. Because of this societally, societally induced shame, they may try to suppress symptoms of traumatization. 
via drug and alcohol abuse or hide from friends and family using work and other excuses to avoid those who know them best. The tragedy of this is that authentic relationships play an essential role in trauma healing. Being without them, by contrast, can cause additional harm. Seeking medical care for trauma can be fraught. If an individual is living somewhere where the dominant culture is not their own and they've experienced discrimination in medical settings, they may be adverse to seeking help, which will negatively affect recovery. Even without firsthand experience of discrimination in these settings, knowledge of implicit biases may influence a person's decision to get help. Sadly, treatment is also likely to be affected by implicit bias, as clinicians' biases have been proven to influence both diagnosis and treatment. The power of community. Another factor that influences a trauma's impact is the survivor's community. Community is defined as a feeling of fellowship with others as a result of sharing common attitudes, interests, and goals. In short, community is our real-world social network. In multiple studies, social support is a key indicator of how an individual will progress through trauma. An individual's ability to seek and sustain support is strengthened in two ways. One, if the community of a traumatized individual recognizes trauma as having serious and scientifically proven effects on the brain and body, and two, if the community and the individual share the same definition of trauma. A community can enforce or override cultural norms or pressures. If the community embraces all the types and definitions of trauma, encourages reaching out for support, and celebrates the healing process, an individual whose family or ancestral culture doesn't may find themselves better to heal. That the individual doesn't feel loneliness, a common companion to trauma and another trigger of adverse health effects on top of the trauma is a big factor toward recovery. As individuals, we may have one core community, but we inhabit many. We have our neighborhood communities, religious communities, and work communities, as well as other circles drawn around our partners and children. As yoga teachers, we create community, or sangha, around the practice. We have our yoga studios, our online spaces, our yoga friendships, and companion yoga activities such as book clubs or getting tea and coffee with fellow practitioners. The conscious creation of a safe and supportive community is a way for us to have a profound impact on our students. By offering a space, even if it is virtual, and making it as supportive, educated, and trauma-sensitive as possible, you are creating Sangha. Sangha, spiritual community, is one of the three jewels in Buddhism, and many believe it is even the most important. When survivors can rely on a Sangha for support, the burden of recovery is alleviated. In a spiritual community, practitioners lean on each other for both support and growth. Meditation and mindfulness teacher Larry Yang speaks on Sangha in his book, Awakening Together. Our needs are not solely an individual matter. Even though we might feel them personally, it is the practice of Sangha to naturally take care of others with grace and ease, to share our joys and sorrows together in communion with the full range of our collective experience. No one is alone. We are all interdependent. Teacher Spotlight, Pratiba Premkumar. Pratiba, she, her, came to yoga after a running injury, led her to seek exercise that would be gentle on her joints. As she gradually experienced the powerful effects of the breath-mind-body connection through yoga, she came to realize it was a practice that was more than simply exercise. Pratiba completed her trauma-informed training through Three and a Half Acres Yoga in 2019. Shortly after her training, she began teaching a weekly yoga class for the Urban Resource Institute for Women, transitioning out of domestic violence situations. I got into a series of bad relationships, and it got worse when I met this one guy who love-bombed me. I started drinking a lot relying on my drinking just to escape. 
Eventually that relationship ended. You would think after the relationship ended, I would have stopped drinking as much, but I started drinking more. It was a way to deal with my PTSD. So it got really bad the year after that. I was taking yoga classes during this time and I felt horrible about myself. I went to this one studio where the teacher was always so nice to me that I always made sure, even if I had drunk way too much the night before and could barely get up, that I went to her twice weekly classes. I was walking around with so much shame weighing down on me, constantly, day to day. Just going to yoga class and the kindness helped me heal in its own way, and eventually I made the decision to stop drinking. A few months later, I was posting on the wall for teacher trainings, and I took it. The yoga became less about exercise and more about the whole yoga philosophy. One of the course assignments was to choose one of the eight limbs of yoga and discuss how it applies to your life. I chose tapas, passion, sticking to something, and how I used it to stop drinking. If you want to change something, just stick to that commitment. Stoke that fire. Fire is transformative. The teacher who was nice to me inspired me to get into trauma-informed yoga. Being with people, showing a little kindness to people who are going through something, even if it's the tiniest little thing, can be beneficial. Trauma-informed yoga is different than vinyasa. It's more about mindfulness and an approach of gentleness. That's what I like about it. Being a supportive resource for your students. Pratiba was able to find a healthy yoga situation, but not everyone has that access to the same resources. Not everyone has access to a mental health professional who specializes in trauma or the insurance or copay to cover visits, let alone the time to take off work or find and pay for the childcare needed during mental health appointments. Sometimes lack of resources means lack of access to information about trauma or money for necessary medication. Yoga is a resource that can also come with accessibility issues, and trauma sensitivity is one of them. By taking the time to make your yoga offerings trauma-sensitive, you are making them more accessible and providing a valuable resource. It takes nothing away from those of your students who have been spared trauma to make your classes trauma-sensitive, and it gives much-needed security and protection to those who have. You can further that contribution by having additional resources prepared for your students, such as names of trauma-sensitive healthcare professionals, literature on trauma, and information on support groups. Some of your students will need more than yoga to heal from trauma. Knowing the limits of your knowledge and expertise and being able to, and eager to refer out is key to limiting harm to your students and to yourself. Below are some other modalities that might benefit your students. A basic understanding of complementary modalities will help you guide them. Be mindful when referring out that you are not diagnosing and that your student does not feel rejected or get a sense that they are somehow more broken than you can handle. Keep the conversation open about your own limitations in knowledge and expertise. Complementary therapists for trauma survivors. Instead of overpromising on the benefits of yoga, the time has come for yoga teachers to build a supportive referral network for students who need more than yoga. Teachers can forge relationships with clinicians in the categories below by attending networking groups through BNI, Business Network International, or your local chamber of commerce. When referring, it's preferable to know the therapist and have a sense for how they work. If possible, consider asking for a sample treatment session so you understand their methods. Before referring out, know if the clinician is taking new clients, if they accept insurance, and if they work virtually as well as in person. Psychotherapy. Psychotherapy is what is commonly known as talk therapy. The patient talks about their life and their trauma, and the doctor works with the patient through the healing process by talking and listening. 
Weekly sessions can be limited to a few or continue for years with the individual alone or including family members. Sometimes medication is prescribed in combination with therapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy. A cognitive behavioral therapist focuses on helping the patient recognize negative behaviors and mental patterns in their life and replace them with positive ones. In cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT, the emphasis is on reprogramming the brain by practicing alternative thought patterns. The patient will often work on building their tolerance to potentially triggering stimuli by using this method. Eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. Mental health professionals with certification in eye movement desensitization and processing, EMDR, facilitate the client's remembering of traumatic events while directing them to focus on external stimulus. This is usually experienced as lateral eye movements, although hand tapping and audio stimulation may also be used. Through these movements, new learning pathways are established in the brain, which often results in rapid and long-lasting healing. Group therapy. Group therapy typically involves one or more psychologists and 5 to 15 patients who have a similar issue and need of support. Participants are often surprised by how much they benefit from being in a group. When sharing, the others act as a sounding board and in some cases may even help with problem solving. As a listener, participants may find it comforting that others are also struggling and they are not alone. Somatic therapy or somatic experiencing therapy. Somatic therapy or somatic experiencing therapy incorporates the mind, body, and spirit into healing work, specifically focusing on the physical body holds tension. Somatic therapists help their patients release pent-up tensions as a way to release their trauma and to recognize and work with bodily sensations as a way to process experiences and live trauma-free. Biological factors of trauma. How a person is affected by trauma is contingent on social and cultural factors and with the structure and workings of the individual's brain and body chemistry. Each of us is unique, and therefore each of us will have our own experience dealing with trauma. The discovery of the brain's neuroplasticity was a neuroscientific breakthrough, and we now know the structure of the brain changes depending on how we use it. Nurturing patterns of brain functioning that support recovery will make those patterns stronger and eventually turn those positive patterns into habits. This is part of the work of trauma-informed yoga. Still, it's important to note that not all brains recover in the same way. Not all brains come back from traumatic events to their pre-trauma state. Not all brains were at the same developmental stage when the trauma was introduced to them. The mind-body has no correct response to trauma. Each response is the individual mind-body system's intelligent way of protecting the survivor, and it must be honored. Your brain on trauma. So what happens to the brain on trauma? One of the most obvious things that happen is the amygdala becomes activated. The amygdala is the almond-shaped structure located within the temporal lobe of the brain, part of the limbic system, the middle section of the brain, known as the emotional center. Structures within the limbic system tend send and receive signals to and from the hypothalamus, the automatic reptilian part of our brain, and the prefrontal cortex, the thinking, rationalizing part of our brain. The amygdala's primary role is to alert us to danger. When the amygdala signals, the hypothalamus hears it loud and clear. The hypothalamus is the part of the brain that regulates the body's breath, heart rate, temperature, and other automatic processes. At the first signal of danger, the amygdala, the sympathetic nervous system, becomes engaged and sets off a series of of physiological responses. Adrenaline is secreted and circulated. This increases our heart rate, which quickly pushes blood into vital organs. The lungs open up and breath becomes more rapid. 
Cortisol and epinephrine cause sugars and fats to be released from the liver, flooding the blood, sending energy to large muscles of the body. The body's sympathetic nervous system has kicked into gear, which means you are aroused and ready to respond to the crisis. At the same time, the amygdala is firing, the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that assesses, calculates, and plans, is doing the opposite. It's slowing or shutting down. We don't need long-term planning in a moment of crisis. Other non-essential bodily processes, such as reproduction, digestion, and functions related to growth, among others, slow or stop as well. All systems are working together now to attend to the crisis that triggered the stress response. Consider this from the perspective within a person who's been traumatized. In this individual, the stress response continues to single long after the incident has passed. The amygdala remains hyperactive, keeping the body in a state of panic. In this hyperactive state, the brain perceives nearly everything in the environment as dangerous, signaling the body to react as if it's in immediate danger and continuing to send out all those stress hormones. As trauma specialist and somatic experiencing developer Dr. Peter Levine explains in his trauma resource staple, Waking the Tiger, when arousal continues because discharging it is too threatening, we find ourselves in a no-win situation. We feel compelled to find a source of threat, but the compulsion is internally generated, and even if an external source of threat is identified, the compulsive hypervigilance stance will continue because the internal arousal is the threat. Trauma results, Levine writes, when the neocortex overrides the instinctual response that would initiate the completion of this cycle. Long-term planning and other functions unimportant to the perceived threat continue to remain shut down or repressed, and the system fluctuates between hypo and hyperarousal, flight, fight, free states indefinitely. Imagine trying to navigate the world while this radical fluctuation is flooding your automatic systems. How do you know which of the warning signals your body is sending are valid to distinguish between real and imagined threat? How do you regulate emotions or understand expectations? It is challenging to get comfortable because triggering and dysregulation can happen unexpectedly. To cope, perhaps you begin to retreat inward. This might mean avoiding any places that could be triggering, such as spaces that are dark, hard to exit, new, or at all resemble the place of the inciting trauma. You may not want to go out during certain hours or be anywhere you can't leave quickly. Your body may pull inward into a more protective stance. Certain muscular holding patterns are that are similar to a fetal position. Perhaps your chest curls to protect the heart, bringing the arms with it. Your head may dip down, ducking the chin. Your brain is telling your body that it's unsafe and you should protect yourself. However, your body's positioning also sends signals back to the brain. By remaining in protective posture, it tells the brain that there is danger, unconsciously escalating the situation. The prefrontal cortex remains offline, and a lingering fogginess makes it difficult to think clearly and make good decisions. You try to concentrate, but you simply can't. Days and eventually weeks go by, and you have not responded to important requests. Other people think you're lazy, or perhaps rude. You misread social cues and respond inappropriately to those around you. You begin to feel you can rely on neither your instincts nor your reasoning for good decision-making, and this makes you even more afraid. You have nothing to hold on to. Sometimes the combination of the triggered amygdala and the lethargic prefrontal cortex result in the opposite response. 
radical inhibition. In this case, the survivor employs actions and behaviors that may seem adolescent, like they're acting out, which is a sign of the diminished functioning of the problem-solving and socially regulating part of their brains. In fact, the prefrontal cortex isn't fully formed until our mid-20s, a good case for restricting activities with long-term consequences until then. Sometimes trauma survivors tend to break social norms by oversharing, disrupting, and dismissing boundaries. This can also be due to the brain's compulsion to relieve the traumatic incident until they to relive the traumatic incident until they play the whole thing out with a better ending where they're able to escape or triumph, or due to a survivor feeling deep hurt and shame manifesting in violence against themselves. In these cases, the survivor may appear to stretch endlessly outward even recreating events similar to those that caused the initial trauma. They may also be unconsciously looking for some sensory feedback, indicating a boundary, but feeling little or nothing in the way of an edge. Instead of having a fear-based survival mechanism that uses inhibition to protect against, they use inhibition to protect against future pain, the body simply does not register pain. They're tuned out, numb, disassociated from the experiences they are living. In these cases, when asked to comment on a particular part of the yoga experience, students will tell you they feel nothing. Trauma's long arc. Brain fog, jitters, overreactions to the slightest stimuli, and increased aggression are just a few of the impacts of trauma. Interpersonal relationships can suffer as the person impacted by the trauma has trouble focusing on others or is actively trying to avoid others to hide what they're going through. Due to hypervigilance, the inability to sleep or sleep deeply is common and further diminishes brain function at horrifying levels. According to Dr. Matthew Walker, the author of Why We Sleep, there is no major psychiatric condition in which sleep is normal. And this is true of depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder, once known as manic depression. Studies show that yoga helps folks sleep, and some yoga teachers have taken note of that. My dear friend Pamela Stokes, the founder of Yoga to Sleep and a certified yoga therapist, started her company after experiencing how her own challenges with insomnia and secondary post-traumatic stress, PTS, could uh, be alleviated with yoga. In her Yoga Journal article, How One Yoga Teacher Found Strength After Her Husband's War Injury, Pamela talks about returning to her practice after near burnout taking care of her husband. Finding my flow, Pamela writes, down-regulated my central nervous system and empowered me to explore additional forms of self-care. By focusing on myself and surrendering to awareness, I found more compassion for myself. As a result, I was able to create the space necessary to be a more present and loving caregiver. Avoidance is a common coping mechanism that pushes away the feelings that come with processing a traumatic experience. To avoid those feelings, the trauma survivor may choose to stay in a state of hyperactivity and distraction, use drugs or alcohol, or adopt any number of habits, including downplaying what happened and engaging in high-risk behaviors. Having some understanding of insensitivity to humankind's universal trauma response makes you better able to accommodate a student who may need a position near or viewing a door instead of automatically assuming they want to be able to exit your class for superficial reasons. It helps to clarify behavior that seems abnormal and to curb the instinct to jump to judgment when people don't meet the ideals of social norms. It reveals why your students may have a hard time remembering movement sequences or poses from week to week. The way of being reacts to trauma is normal, protective, necessary, and life-saving until it's not. 
As Dr. Robert Sapolsky makes a compelling case for in his book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers, our response to threat is biologically important. That we can't turn it off after the threat has passed is what is damaging. Over time, the extended response to past trauma may cause more injury to the already harmed individual. It may keep them from jobs, travel, forming and engaging in deep interpersonal relationships, and many other fulfilling life experiences, as well as harm their health. Even so, it's hard to say when the time is right for the individual to stop protecting themselves. As yoga teachers, we don't know what experiences they go back to after we see them in class and what protections they need to survive inside their bodies. We don't know if the flood of memory would come back with a fury if they were to relax in the safest possible environment, such as our class. Are they ready for that? As trauma-informed yoga teachers, our our approach must be extraordinarily slow and non-striving, with the student always leading the way. It's typical for a yoga survivor to create circumstances similar to the inciting incident in an unconscious effort to reenact the event. Reliving a traumatic event and trying to work out the response to it differently, both in a physical reality and in the mind, is a very common rabbit hole for trauma survivors to fall into, often resulting in increased trauma and agitation. As yoga teachers, it's important we know all of this can be going on while designing our classes. It helps us recognize why a seemingly simple request, such as having our students sit in silence for a few minutes, is not always an inviting proposition. Some talking activity is usually needed to mute the past experience and can be an anchor for developing deeper concentration down the line. Knowing and integrating this fact alone can make your class much more trauma-sensitive. Exercise. Broadening awareness. Consider again the list of experiences that can lead to trauma. Is this the first time you have read such a detailed and expansive definition of trauma? How does this impact you as a yoga teacher and human? Write down the ways this alters your view of others in your life, family, social networks, and community. Chapter's core concepts. The definition of trauma is constant, but its scope is always evolving. Trauma may not be obvious, but it is present in every shared space. A person's response to trauma is determined by factors other than the trauma itself, such as previous experience, being believed, community, resources, biology. Traumatization happens when the mind-body system is overwhelmed and cannot regulate itself post-trauma. Signs of this are hypervigilance, avoidance, brain fog, disassociation, oversharing, and self-harm. A prolonged stress response can lead to serious health consequences, though it may also serve as a necessary protection to the survivor. It is up to the survivor to decide if they want to let go of their defenses and at what pace. As a yoga teacher, don't overpromise healing. Offer referrals for clinicians who can support your student with modalities in addition to yoga. Exercise. Looking at past traumas. Take some time to consider and journal on past traumas you and your ancestors have experienced and how that history has an impact on how you navigate the world. For instance, What comes to mind when I think of my family history is my grandparents' escapes from Nazi Germany. I recognize how they needed to carry and rely on essential survival techniques during this time, such as staying in close relationship with others like them for support and insider information, working longer than required hours once in the U.S., 
and getting quiet about much of their past, including their first language, for quick assimilation. These practices have been passed down not only through the family lineage, pushing us toward perfectionism even when new threats have not existed, but also through a coded agreement to be successful, but not so much so that we stand out. I can feel into my paternal grandparents' personal stories of hard work and eventual success in their new country. I can trace the line through the generations to my quirky, but previously invisible to myself ways of understanding the world, opportunities, and others. And I can mourn the ways my tendencies toward perfectionism, born of their struggle, have in the past harmed my relationships, both with myself and others. All known and unknown histories live within each of us and influence our moment-to-moment behavior without permission, unless we own up to it and explore it. And that concludes the first 27 pages of the Essential Guide to Trauma-Sensitive Yoga. What did you think, guys and gals and, and everyone? What did you think? Um, I hope it's intrigued you and I hope, um, maybe you'll go out and get the book. Um, and I really hope this was helpful and interesting. And again, I would love to hear your feedback and your response to this work. So thank you very much. Maybe we'll have some more of this.